Hello, everybody. I'm Greg Boyd. I'm a teaching pastor here. It's really, it's just always a joy to come and be together and worship with the, uh, all you folks and with the folks online. Uh, it's just a refreshing moment. We go about our week doing all the normal mundane stuff that you got to do, you know, just uh, doing life, right? And uh, sometimes it's easy and sometimes it's hard, but every week we take time out to think about what's the purpose of the whole thing? What's really going on here? You know, what's the meaning of all this? And it's uh, an important and wonderful time that we have to do this. Um, before I go any further, I want to give a shout-out. I didn't do this last week, but I meant to. But a shout-out to Chris Beckert and to Kishon, who gave those two wonderful messages a couple weeks ago. Weren't they great? Kishon and uh, Chris. It, you guys are a gift to Woodland Hills, and so thank you for contributing that gift. Um, and then we asked this question last week. What is salvation? What does it mean to you? And so this is kind of like family feud where we're saying, what does the board say? So the board says... When you think about salvation, you think about things like freedom and eternal life and a relationship with God. Some people say it means that you're saved or that you, 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 love saved you from death. Uh, salvation means uh, hope with God and a second chance and saved from sin and freedom from sin and death. And uh, salvation means new life. And I'm here this morning to tell you that you're all wrong, man. You got to, you just bombed out, man. You got to listen to the theologian tell you what salvation is. Now, actually, you're all right. Uh, all of that is encompassed in this idea of salvation. So today I want to do two things. The first thing is I want to uh, continue from last week and talk about the scandal of particularity. Uh, this, the, the fact that Jesus makes these extreme uh, claims about himself, exclusive truth claims about himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. None other. He is the word of God. None other. He's the savior of the world. None other. And in our culture, this pluralistic kind of postmodern relativistic culture in which we live, all truth claims like that to say this one's right and everybody else is wrong sounds intolerant. It sounds narrow-minded. That's a scandal of particularity. And then after that, I'm going to talk about this whole concept of salvation. So first, a scandal of particularity. I am the way, the truth, and the life. How should we understand this? My good friend Paul Eddy had an analogy that I'm going to kind of... Uh, this message on. Imagine this, that a new pandemic broke out. God forbid, it's not going to happen. Let's pray against that. But what if, because I'm told the old pandemic's over, <laughs> apparently. It's time out. It's done, even though I've known three people who got sick since they called the pandemic off. It's officially over now. And uh, uh, I guess 200, more 200 people a day are dying from it. But it's over, they say. But what if a, a, the, the dreaded pandemic came? And, and this virus found out a way how to just get around all of our immune systems, and it was very lethal, and it was very contagious, and spreading everywhere. And uh, hospitals are being overrun. People are just panicking, okay? So imagine that that was happening. And then suppose there was a little tiny pharmaceutical company in Yugoslavia or someplace that all of a sudden said, hey, we have a vaccine. We've, we've discovered the vaccine for this. And, and it's 100% uh, it's, uh, effective. It's got no side effects. We need everyone to be taking this right now. Wouldn't it be a little bit odd if, 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 if some people objected to that, saying, what a narrow truth claim. How intolerant of you. Oh, you have a vaccine. Among all the pharmaceutical companies of the world, you, you're the ones who got it right. Well, that'd be an odd response. In a state of catastrophe, when everything is looking gloomy and doomy, the only relevant question is, is are they right? Are they telling the truth? Which is to say, what is the evidence that they, in fact, have a vaccine that protects us against this lethal virus? 
It's the same kind of situation when you consider the gospel. This is the context in which we've got to understand Jesus' radical, exclusive, even crazy-sounding truth claims. No one knows the Father except for me and whoever I want to reveal them to. Who does this guy think he is? But see, here's the context. Humanity, according to the gospel, humanity is infected with a lethal virus, a spiritual virus. As a race, we have turned from God, and to turn from God is to turn from the source of all life and wholeness and harmony and goodness. And so when you turn from God, you're turning towards death and destruction and disease. And as a result of our turning, we have been infected with this spiritual virus. It's a virus of self-centeredness. It causes us to put our own interests above the interests of God and everybody else, a virus of self-centeredness. And, and, and the way the Bible describes the situation is that this virus is so lethal, it has, for all intents and purposes, killed us. So the Bible describes us as dead, apart from Christ. Ephesians 2, for example. Paul says, you were dead through the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world. This world, an ordinary course, is to walk in this trespasses and sin. We were following the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. And I'll say a little bit more about that spirit that's at work among those who are disobedient in a little bit here. But right now, I just want us to notice that Paul says we're dead. Dead. Now, I know that this really goes against the kind of the, 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 the idea that we're taught. Um, at least I was taught from a very young age. It's kind of this humanist doctrine that well, we, but people are all inherently good and we're all inherently capable and we're, we're intelligent and we're resilient and we can always find a way to figure things out. We can all, always pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and things are always going to be improving and getting better and better because we're just that smart. It's this idea that uh, we're self-reliant. We can pull this off on ourselves. We don't need a God and we don't need a Savior. We'll figure it out. Kind of the mantra of, of our age, it's, it's waning now as pessimism is is kind of soaking into people, but that's still a mantra that's very much out there. This is the kind of a cultural mandate where, you know, every kid's supposed to get a smiley face on their paper, and, and no matter how bad they did, what's important is that they feel good about it, you know, and it's building the self-esteem and all of that. And against all of this up with humanity stuff, we have the gospel saying, sorry, folks, you're dead in your sin. And it doesn't mean that we are as bad as possible, but it does mean we can't save ourselves. Can't save ourselves. Now, here's the thing. There's an element of truth in that perspective because there is an inherent goodness in human beings. In fact, there's an inherent greatness in human beings because we're made in the image of God, and God is great. Somebody say amen. So we're made in the image of a great God. So there is this, we are, in fact, the gospel reveals this, the cross reveals this. Each one of us individually is, is the most precious thing in the universe in God's eyes. So we have this unsurpassable worth. Yes, that's all true. But what's also true is that we've got free will because the goal of the whole thing is love, and love's got to be chosen. And so we are in the image of this great God, and we are capable of great things when we align our will with God's will, which is to align our will with this other-oriented love because that's what God's nature is. When we do that, we're capable of incredible, wonderful, brilliant things, but we're also capable of going the opposite direction to the same extreme. It's the principle of proportionality. The potential for anything for good is also its potential for evil. And so we've got this free will, and it can do so much good, but it can also do so much evil. And so now ask yourself the question, as you look around at this world right now, 
How have we chosen as a race? How, look at your neighborhood. Look at the, the, the nation. Look at the globe. Look at the environment. How have we done as a species? Uh, does it look like we've consistently chosen the way of other-oriented love, the way of God? Or does it look like we've chosen a way of putting ourselves above the interests of God and above the interests of people and above the interests of the environment? And I submit to you that, while there's still a lot of good in this world for sure, but there's also a whole lot that's bad. And if there's one thing that seems to me to be increasingly obvious in this world right now, and it's that we need a Savior. We need a Savior. I, it, it's, we're not going to figure this one out on our own. We can figure out a whole lot of things, but we can't figure out how to save ourselves. Can somebody figure out, engineer, a way to kind of roll back the polarization and the fragmentation and the extremism that's being created by the Internet? How do you walk this thing back? Can someone figure out how do you run a democracy when you don't have any shared values or any shared trust in institution or any shared trust in politicians or even any shared trust in one another? How does that work? Figure that one out. Can someone figure out how do you sustain a perpetual growing economy that has to keep on growing? How do you sustain that on a planet with finite reserves, perpetually diminishing resources? Yeah, you can take your way a long while on that, wringing more and more out of this planet, but there comes a point well, you do the math. Someone figure that out. We figure out a way to make ourselves less self-centered, to put the, the, the good of the whole above our own interests. Can somebody figure out how to make us more loving and respectful for one another? Just wave your magic wand. Make it happen. See, we can't do that. We can figure out a lot of stuff. We're really smart when it comes to te technology and making the world more convenient to us and all the rest. But folks, we cannot save ourselves. We need a Savior. Somebody say amen. That's the gospel. We're in a desperate situation. We've been infected with this virus of self-centeredness. And see, so when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, don't hear him as saying, me, not Buddha, me, not Taoism, me, not Confucius. He's not trying to enter into the world of religious competing truth claims. What he's saying is, I'm your, your antidote to this lethal virus. Take me, ingest me, swallow me. Uh, shoot me into your veins. Get me on the inside of your life and let me begin to free you from this virus of self-centeredness, which is a virus that leads towards self-destruction. This thing that holds you in oppression and makes you miserable and keeps you in a state of fear and anxiety and jealousy and sometimes hatred. He's saying, let me free you from that till you discover the joy of how God really wanted us to live. To live in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us. Folks, that is freedom, amen? And that's the freedom that Jesus comes to set us free. Hallelujah. So he's, you got to hear him as the antidote to the virus that has afflicted us. Uh, so the only relevant question then is, it's not like how narrow is this claim? Is it intolerant or whatever? How dare Jesus think he's something special? Well, he does. And, 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 and the only question is, only relevant question given the state of humanity is, is he right or not? Is he telling the truth? And I have spent a good portion of my life living in that question. Um, and I'll just tell you that, well, certainty always escapes human beings. I'm not going to claim certainty on anything, but I have found I've got far more reasons for believing that Jesus Christ is Lord and that the gospel is true than I have for believing any other particular worldview or political system or ideology out there. And while certainty is, is, is beyond us, I'm confident enough to say I'm all in. And that's what faith is. 
I'm going to now live in that story. I'm going to think in that story. I'm going to feel that story. I'm going to line up my behavior with that story. I'm all in. Because I have reasons to think it's true. And if you have not you made that decision to be all in, you're still kind of considering, I encourage you to really explore that. There's a lot of reasons for thinking this really is true. A lot of reasons for believing that the state of humanity that the Bible portrays us as being in, dead in sin, apart from God, that that really is true. And that it really is true that Jesus is the antidote uh, for the ills that afflict us. So that's the whole issue of the scandal of particularity. Jesus is the one antidote that frees us from the virus of our self-centeredness. So there's a second issue now, salvation, and they're very interrelated. Um, the question is, is this on salvation is what, what are we saved from? If you're saved, it must be from something. So what are we saved from? Now there's a lot of Christians who would say that what we're saved from, what Jesus does on the cross is he saves us from the wrath of God. The idea here is, see, God is all holy, which is true. And because God's holy, all holy, these folks say that he can never compromise with sin. He can never condone sin. Because he's all holy, all sin must be punished. The trouble is, is that God also loves us. And so the question that in this view, the, the, the question that God's got to solve is, how can an all holy, all just God love sinners who are not holy or just? And the answer, according to this view that God comes up with is, well, I'll, I'll, I'll vent my wrath against sin. I'll vent my wrath towards Jesus so that I don't have to vent it towards human beings and that will allow me to now have fellowship with sinful unjust human beings. So Jesus satisfies, his, his death on the cross satisfies the wrath of God. A lot of you people hold this view. It's called the penal substitution view of the atonement. Now, I, I spoke a lot about this in a, in a previous message a couple of years ago. Uh, it's in the, to the Twisted Scripture series on Roman, uh, Hebrews 9, uh, 18 through uh, 22. You can look it up. If you want to go deeper into this, um, there's a lot of problems with this view. A lot of problems. Go refer to that sermon. One of them being that it puts at the center of the whole Christian story the myth of redemptive violence. This is the myth that is so pervasive in America, that the way you solve problems is through violence. you got to win through coercion and violence. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's kind of a, it's an assumption. And, and, and this view of the gospel, then, has God solving the major problem between God and humanity by killing somebody. So it sends the message that the way you solve problems is by killing. And if it's good enough for God, then it's good enough for us. And so sadly, from the 11th century on, when this view of the atonement really began to be popular in the 11th century, it wasn't the early church's view of the atonement, or what Jesus does on the cross, but it became that in the 11th century. The myth of redemptive violence at the center of the Christian story, and it's not a coincidence that Shortly after that is when the church embarks on these crusades and embarks on the Inquisition and then follows the Thirty Years' War and the Hundred Years' War and all the Christian and Christian violence that took place over four centuries in Europe. There's a link between the two because we always become the image of God that we worship. And if you put violence at the center of the Christian story, it's going to incline you towards violence. If it's good enough for God, it's good enough for us. That's just one of the many problems that, 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 that attend to this view. But most fundamentally, I'd say this. This view... I think is erroneous on two accounts. On the one hand, it misconstrues uh, God's character. It gets the character of God wrong, and that's why it gets the message of salvation wrong. Here's how it gets the character of God wrong. 
In this view, God's holiness and God's love are in tension with one another. God's conflicted. It's like his holiness and his love are on an equal footing, and they're not quite in harmony because God loves those that he can't love because his holiness won't let him. And that's what requires Jesus to absorb the wrath of God and all the rest. So God's conflicted here. You've got to think of God's holiness sort of like, uh, you've all seen the play or the movie of the play, uh, Les Miserables, uh, The Miserable Ones. Um, and there's an inspector in there, Inspector Sever, who's, who's always after Jean Valjean, who stole a, some bread. And, and see, this Inspector Sever, he's got this mindset that the law must be carried out. He's just anal about this, and, and therefore, forgiveness is impossible. Mercy is impossible. It's, it's synonymous with injustice. Not to be a spoiler here, but, but this inspector would rather die, rather commit suicide than forgive. Because the law is such a part of his psyche. And that's kind of how God is in this view. God's, n- nothing can be forgiven for free. Nothing's for free. Justice must be done. Sin must be punished. Has to be. And so Jesus steps in to take the punishment that, that we deserved. And so God, his, his, his Inspector Chevere holiness is in conflict with that cruciform love that's expressed on the cross. But see, I submit to you that there's no conflict in God. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this. Paul says, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. It's all been forgiven. And trusting the message of reconciliation to us. Our message of reconciliation is, hey, it's all been forgiven. God's not holding trespasses against anybody. But notice here that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He wasn't, God wasn't reconciling his holiness with his justice. God's not the one who needs reconciling. The world needs reconciling. God's not the one who's conflicted. It's the world that's conflicted. God's not the one who needs a therapist. It's the world that needs a therapist. And God's not the one who needs saving. It's the world that needs saving. Amen? God is consistent. Yes, God is just. Absolutely. Because, see, before we enter into the eternal kingdom, everything that's inconsistent with that eternal kingdom, which is everything that's inconsistent with the character of God, which is everything that's inconsistent with the cross, all of it must be burned away. It's the great purging. There must be a purging. And that's what the final judgment's all about. It's the purging that is necessary to give birth to the new heaven and the new earth and this eternal kingdom in which, in, in which everything will reign with the love of God. And God will be all in all. So there is this justice, and the justice can be severe. And the, the Bible's clear about that. But see, if the justice is severe, it's because God's love is severe. It's always motivated by this other-oriented love. There's no other motive in God other than that. Yes, the justice can be severe, but it's always done for our benefit. That's why throughout the Bible, uh, you always find passages of judgment paralleled with passages of salvation because God's motive in bringing judgment, as harsh as it can be sometimes, his motive is ultimately reconciliation and redemption. He's not about getting even. Got to make you pay for what you did. No, it's always about restoration and, and, and recovery. So, folks, when Jesus says, if you see me, you see the Father, John 14, 9 and 10, he really means it. He really does mean it. If you see me, you see the Father. He's not just saying, if you see me, you see the nice side of God, the graceful side of God, the merciful side of God, as though he's concealing this Inspector Chevere side of God, this uncompromising, intolerable 
kind of God. No, when he says, if you see me, you see the Father, he's talking about his character. And, he, and, and see, the Hebrews 1 tells us that Jesus reveals the character of God down to God's very essence, his hypostasis. This is what God is like. God is like cross-like love all the way down to the core of God's being. There's nothing there other than cross-like love. So the Bible says that in, God is light and in him there is no darkness. And, and, and the, James says that in God there's no shadow of turning. There's no shadow of duplicity. There's no shadow of tension, no shadow of, of conflictedness. Whatever God does expresses who God is, and who God is is cross-like love. And so the justice, yeah, it can be nasty, it can be tough, it can be miserable, but it's done out of love for the purpose of, of restoration. So the penal substitution, I think, that, that view of the atonement gets the, the, the idea of God wrong, the conception of God wrong, the character of God wrong, and therefore it mixes up with the conception of salvation. Jesus comes and he doesn't reconcile God's love with God's justice, he reconciles us to God. And he does that by freeing us from the sin, that sin of self-centered virus that separates us from God. So it says this in, in Matthew chapter 1, for example. This is being spoken to Mary. It says, she will bear a son and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save their people from their sins. It doesn't say he'll save their people just from the consequences of their sins. No, he's going to save these people from sin itself. So Jesus' death on the cross, that self-sacrificial love of God revealed on the cross, is the antidote to the virus of self-centeredness. So it's the antidote to everything about us that's self-destructive. It's the antidote to everything about us that's inconsistent with the character of God. It's the antidote to everything about us that brings about destruction in our life and destructions in, in, in the life of others. It's the, it's, it's the antidote to everything that gets us trapped in fear anxiety, hatred, and frustration. But see, when we surrender our life to Christ, hear this now, you are individually and we are collectively united with Christ. And we're given the voice of the Holy Spirit, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. And so when you surrender your life to Christ, there is inside of you a voice. And it is the, 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 the voice of pure love. And it's the voice of the Holy Spirit. And that voice is always influencing you, trying to influence you in the direction of Christ-likeness, in the direction of other-oriented love, in the direction of mercy and forgiveness, always inclining us in the direction of service towards others, it, 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 always influencing us to let go of our self-centeredness, to die to that old self. See, the whole job of discipleship, folks, is to learn how to yield to that voice. That's the whole job of discipleship. The Spirit is inside of you, always influencing in that direction. We all know it's there, and sometimes it bugs the daylights out of it because it brings conviction. We might wish it, was, wish it wasn't there, and we can tune it out if we want to because God never coerces people. Oh, but see, the whole, all the growth comes when we yield. We find a way to say yes to that spirit inside of us. We crucify the old self and, 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 and put on the new self that's in Christ Jesus. That's what it means to drink this antidote. To drink the antidote of God's perfect love revealed on the cross is to learn how to die to yourself and to put manifest the new self that you are in Christ Jesus. That's why the Bible describes salvation in three tenses. We have been saved the minute we surrendered our life to Christ, but we're also being saved. Salvation is just the concept of bringing God's life into our life, bringing wholeness into fragmentation, uh, bringing healing in, in, into wounds. 
we're in the process of being saved, and then ultimately we shall be saved when the process is finally complete and we're fully reconciled to God and God is all in all. We're in the process of being saved. But there's more to this, and I think it's the most exciting aspect of, of salvation. Because Jesus came not only to free human beings from the lethal virus of self-centeredness that we had contracted and that afflicts us, but he came to set the whole creation free. And he sets the whole creation free by bringing an end to the virus itself. He came to extinguish that virus itself. The name that the New Testament gives this virus, this superbug, if you will, well, that's a good thing, Satan, the superbug. The name is Satan, Hasatan. Uh, it, it, it means adversary. He's also the one that's associated with the, the accuser. He is the one in the spiritual realm that is the inspector Chevere. He is the one who's always reminding people of their sin, always condemning people. He's the one who refuses to offer any kind of forgiveness or mercy. He's the ultimate legalist in the heavenly realm. Don't get God and Satan confused. Satan is inspector Chevere, not God, all right? Got to know who's on, who's on what side. And so... When you think about Satan now, don't imagine a horned figure, this red horned figure who's, who's got a pitchfork and it's kind of goatee there going on and, and, and all the rest. Because uh, that will just, oh, there you go. Because that's a caricature and that'll, make you, that'll just make you dismiss it as superstition or mythology or whatever. Um, those are just depictions, all right? Don't take those seriously. When, when I think about Satan, it helps me to think about Satan as an intelligent evil force. Just an intelligent evil force. According to the New Testament, this intelligent evil force exists out there. And most people throughout history have believed in this, folks. It's only been the modern Western world that has denied this. But there's an intelligent evil force out there that is like a roaring lion, the New Testament says, seeking whom he may devour. There's an intelligent evil force out there that comes to do one thing, and that is to kill, steal, and destroy, John 10.10. There's an intelligent evil force out there it's functioning like a virus, always figuring out new ways of getting on the inside of you to bring corruption in you and, 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 and to cause you to fall short of the glory of God, of the call of God in, in, in your life. But this intelligent evil force is also not only one that holds humanity in bondage, it's also one that holds the whole creation in bondage and corrupts the creation. According to the New Testament, I shared this a couple of weeks ago, it's why nothing in nature works exactly the way it's supposed to operate. Have you noticed that? And the older you get, the less it works. Somebody say amen to that. <laughs> why everything wears down. Nothing works the way it's supposed to operate. It's why we uh, find in this world that so much reflects the glory of God, but so much doesn't reflect the glory of God. Yeah, you see the glory of God and the awesomeness of nature, but you also see so much in nature that doesn't all seem to reflect the kind of love and nonviolent uh, nature of God revealed on, on, on the cross. Um, it's why nature is red in tooth and claw. That's why Jesus, when he's treating people with these various physical afflictions, he and the gospel authors always diagnose these as having some kind of demonic origin. They're part of a nature that has been corrupted. And so on the cross, Jesus becomes not only the anecdote that, that, that against the lethal, self-centered virus that afflicts humanity, he's the anecdote to everything that afflicts, afflicts creation and that corrupts creation. And he is that by going after the virus that affects everything in the first place, Satan. And so we read this, for example, in 1 John. It says, the reason the Son of God was revealed was to destroy the works of the devil. Why did Jesus show up? Well, 
he accomplishes a lot of things, but at the bottom of the whole thing is he, he came to end the works of, of, of the devil. He came to end everything in us and everything in creation that, that, that kills, steals, and destroys. All right? He came to bring an end to that whole thing to set creation free. Um, Hebrews 2 says this. Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, Jesus likewise shared the same things so that through death, his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and thereby free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. Uh, the one who holds the power of death, knock this in, is Satan, this ultimate superbug of the cosmos, this virus, holds the power of death. And Jesus comes to free us from that power of death and free us from the fear of death, but it's not just about us. I hope we can now see that the salvation that Jesus brings is, is for everyone and for everything. It's for the entire cosmos. This is salvation. And so we read this in Colossians chapter 1, one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, at least for this year. I keep on switching them out. But he says, For in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus isn't just the nice side of God. He's the wholeness of God, all right? The fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace, shalom, through the blood of the cross. By means of the blood of the cross. And there's nothing magical about the blood. It's just the blood is, it stands for the sacrifice that was made on the cross. The love that was expressed on the cross. The extremity to which God was willing to go on the cross on our behalf. And so by means of this self-sacrificial love, this other-oriented, enemy-embracing love that's revealed in the cross, God is now working to bring reconciliation to all things, everyone and all people, whether in heaven or on earth. And he's doing it by means of the love of God that was revealed on Calvary. He's bringing shalom to everything, reconciling everything and everyone to God and reconciling everything and everyone to themselves and to one another, thus bringing shalom to the whole creation so that, as we read several times in the New Testament, so that God will be all in all. So that God's love, that perfect love, that cruciform love is going to radiate and shine like a fractal throughout every element of creation. And we ourselves will put on display the glory of God, and all of nature will put on display the glory of God. As God always intended it to be. And Paul says it's simply unimaginable. We can't even begin to imagine how glorious that will be. But folks, that is salvation. That's salvation. It's not this weird deal that the Father makes with the Son to, you absorb my wrath so I don't have to spend my wrath on them. As though it was only about human beings? No, see, salvation, it, it's about this God who's willing to go to any extreme and to suffer any pain necessary and to pay any price necessary in order to free the humans who he loves from this lethal virus and to reconcile humans to himself. But it's also about this God of perfect love who's willing to go to any extreme and pay any price and suffer any pain necessary for the whole creation that he loves. Because he loves the, the whole creation. He wants to free everything and everyone from this virus of self-centeredness that has affected us all. And so, folks, here's the thing. Our job as ambassadors of Christ, as representatives of the kingdom, is to proclaim God's salvation uh, by our word and by our life, to proclaim God's salvation. And I hope you can now see that this is all-encompassing. It includes everything. We begin to, begin to drink the anecdote of God's love and manifest that new life that Christ has, 
we function as ambassadors, when we, it includes inviting people to enter into a life-saving relationship with Jesus, to begin to drink the anecdote of God's perfect love, to get freed from their own self-centeredness, and to join the community of God's people who are learning how to love together. So it includes inviting individuals into this kingdom. We always need to have that on our radar screen. But it also includes everything. Our message is not just to individuals, but it's to the whole of society and to all of creation. And, and, and we, we do it, we proclaim it with our word, we proclaim it with our deeds. So folks, anytime we make a sacrificial adjustment in our life to bring a little bit more justice into our life, or anytime we make a sacrifice to bring a, a greater other-oriented focus in our life, or whenever we make a sacrifice uh, to, to live in a, in a more sustainable relationship, a more harmonious relationship with the earth, we are drinking the antidote of God's perfect love, and we're getting ourselves free from our own self-centeredness, and in doing that, we're partnering with God to complete Colossians 1, 19 and 20. We're partnering with God to bring about, by means of the love of God, to bring about salvation to all things, harmony to whole thing, all things, shalom to all things. Whenever we make decisions in our own life where we can now begin to notice the invisible folks in our life and, and, and whenever we love the unlovable and forgive the unforgivable, and befriend the unbefriendable. We're drinking the anecdote of God's love. We're getting free from the virus of self-centeredness, and we're participating with God and his community to bring salvation to the world. That's what we're doing. Whenever we make decisions where we side with the oppressed and those who are marginalized and those who are dehumanized by the system, whenever we buck the self-centeredness of our own culture, we're drinking the antidote of God's perfect love and participating and bringing salvation to the world. And whenever we sacrifice of our own resources, to help those in need, to house the homeless, to uh, clothe the naked, uh, to, to, to reach out to those who are, are, are chemically addicted, to help free people from, from whatever it is that oppresses them. We're drinking the antidote of God's love and we're participating, participating with God in bringing salvation to this whole creation. Whenever we visit the prisoner in prison and show hospitality to the stranger, whenever we adopt a child who doesn't, who needs a home, or adopt a pet who needs a home. Whenever we make any decisions that in our own life that lessens the suffering of animals on this planet and that lowers the negative impact that we have on the planet, we are proclaiming salvation when we do that. It's not like salvation's over here where we witness to people with some kind of tracks and then there's this other thing called ecology. No, it's all one thing. It's all wrapped up together and God loves the whole thing and God wants to save the whole thing and God wants to use us as a part of the process. Amen. Amen. <sighs> So salvation is all-encompassing. And, and, and really, it's, it's got to be all-encompassing because while our Western world, our, our worldview tends to, it, it blocks us from us, but what, what I want us to see is from a biblical perspective and also from a scientific perspective, it's all interrelated. Salvation is all-encompassing, us and the whole of creation, because truth is, it's all part of one thing. Uh, my wholeness is wrapped up with your wholeness and everyone else's wholeness. Martin Luther King nailed it when he said, until all of us are truly free, none of us are really free. No, it, we're all in this together. And we're part of this whole eco-environment. We can't abstract ourselves from that. Uh, what we're doing to the earth, we're doing to ourselves. It's like our second layer of skin. So it, it's, it's all wrapped up together. And God loves the whole thing, though it's fallen and diseased. And God wants to save and redeem and rescue the whole thing. Uh, so it reflects his glory as he always intended throughout eternity. And see, Jesus is, is coming back, and there'll be this final purging, which will bring, bring forth the eternal kingdom. In the meantime, our job, as I said last week, our job is to be the first fruits, to put on display now 
the direction that God is stirring the whole of creation. And so whatever will be present in the, new, in, in the, in the heavenly city, in the new, new Jerusalem, on the new earth, whatever will be present there, we want to cultivate that now. And whatever won't be present, we want to purge from our life now. And the whole thrust of the New Testament says uh, that it's better to purge now, to rid yourself of all that's inconsistent with the character of God now, rather than to have it done later on. And so if you're not yet surrendered to Christ, I'm going to end with this invitation. If you're not yet surrendered to Christ, you haven't said, I'm all in. Maybe you've kind of been flirting with it for a little while. But that doesn't count. See, faith is about saying, I'm all in. Uh, if you're not ready, you're not ready. Look into it more. Look at, is this true? Check it out. But maybe you are ready, and I want to encourage you to make this morning the morning where you say you're all in. If you're watching online, whatever time, whatever situation you're watching, you can do it there. It's just a matter of saying, I am going to let go of the control of my life. I'm going to surrender it to Jesus. And start drinking the anecdote of God's cruciform love. Uh, get involved with the community of God's people who are learning to love together. Because this is meant to be, we're all in this together, you guys. Uh, I need you to get my full reward in heaven, and you need me, so let's work together to do that. Okay? It's, it's, we can do much more together than we can ever do individually. But if you're here and you haven't made that decision, would you consider that? Uh, and I'm just going to end with a little prayer here. And if you make that decision, uh, I want to encourage you to uh, talk with one of the prayer folks after the service. We'll have prayer up here front in, if you're in the auditorium. We've got prayer online if you're watching online, doing this, this streamlining. Um, and... Um, and tell them about the decision you made and, and, and ask about the next steps to start getting involved, start getting involved in ministry and all the rest. So, Abba Father, thank you, God, that you are a God who loves us profoundly, uh, but also loves dirt and plants and animals and water and air. Uh, and we thank you, Lord God, for loving it all and for giving your all for it all. Help us, Lord God, to be a people who are sold out who say, I'm all in. Helps us to be a people, Lord, who are listening to that voice of the Holy Spirit in our life, who's always pushing us in the direction of Christ-likeness. Help us to be a people, Lord God, who partner with you by sacrificing of ourselves, learning how to let go of our self-centeredness to bring your message of salvation to all people, to all things, at all times. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen, 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 amen. All right, all right. Uh, I already mentioned the prayer thing, and then uh, we have the gathering groups. Check out the gathering groups. Get to know some people. Meet some people from around the globe. It's really a, a great, great time to go process the sermon a little deeper. And uh, Tuesday, we have the MuseCast. Check that out. They go a little deeper with it. And mark on your calendars June 1st and June 2nd, because June 2nd is my birthday, and you want to make sure you bring me a gift. But more importantly, the Jesus Collective will be happening there. And so uh, come to that if at all possible. God bless you guys. Love you. See you next week.